First Peter chapter four, verse 12, beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. On their parts, that is those who persecute you, they think they're blaspheming God, but on your part, God is glorified. Let none of you suffer, verse 15, as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. How many want to know what I'm going to say about that? I can't wait to talk about that one. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be... Don't you love the Bible? It just it addresses the stuff of life, right? If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God um, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Holy Spirit, uh, speak to us this morning powerfully. I pray that your word that is God-breathed would be alive and powerful in this place and that it would divide apart our soul and spirits. It would, it would cut between the intentions and the motives of our hearts and it would challenge us and convict us and draw us closer to you. Lord, at the end of the day, I pray that our desire is to be like you and I pray that your word would help expedite that process of becoming like you. I ask that you would help me to speak not even a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. And may the word of the Lord change us and transform us in these moments that we share together today. I ask God for your anointing on my life, in my weakness, let your strength be made perfect. And may the word of the Lord Uh, be received today and may it be engrafted in our hearts and ultimately save our souls. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an Amish bishop uh, that was quoted in July of 1989 in the uh, Economist magazine. And here is what he said. Prosperity has often been fatal to Christianity but persecution never has. It's a powerful statement. Prosperity has often been fatal to Christianity, but persecution never has. This morning, the the focus of this message, the focus of the text that I read to you is um, suffering. It's persecution. One of the points that I I made to you a couple of weeks ago is that uh, Peter says, that when it comes to suffering and persecution for our faith, it is highly unlikely that most Christians will experience that. That's what he says in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? In other words, Peter is just making the case, if you do the right thing, if you do the good thing, if you mind your own business and do what is right, it is unlikely that you will find yourself persecuted. 
But then in verse 14, he still holds out that there is the possibility that you will suffer. Because in the very next verse, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. So don't be afraid of their threats and don't be troubled. Now, the fact is that I think if all of us were honest today, um, we would say that the likelihood or at least our sense of the likelihood that we might suffer for our faith or that we might be persecuted in some way for our faith, the likelihood of that, I think all of us would agree, is greater today than we could have ever imagined 10 years ago. I think we watch and we see so much in our nation, our world, but specifically our nation changing that I think it's not beyond our imagination to think that there might come a time and maybe very soon that at some level we may feel ostracized because of who we believe in. We may, we may feel like uh, that we are pushed aside. We may lose a job. We might lose a promotion. We might find ourselves pushed out of circles because of our faith in Christ. I think today we find ourselves thinking, you know what? I could see that happening more than I could have ever seen that happen before. Now, I want to do a little teaching on the front end before we get to the the subject of suffering and how we are to deal with it. A teaching that may not have been as necessary 10 or 20 years ago, but I think it's really important that we hear it today. The fact of the matter is that most of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, have never felt real persecution or real suffering for our faith in Christ. We don't live with that threat at this point, at least not in any great level do we live with that threat. And because we have experienced so little of that to this point, what we tend to do is we take the text that address the issue of suffering as a Christian and we dwarf them into our own experience so we have some way of applying them. I mean, if we haven't experienced persecution or suffering, what are we to do with those scriptures? And so in a a desire to say, I want that scripture to apply to me, we have dwarfed those into our own experience. Now, the primary way, and I'm going to ask you to hear me out before you write me off, and uh, I I think that you will likely uh, agree when we're done with this, but the primary way that we have done this is by making physical sickness or pain, or disease, our suffering. We have said, because I suffer with this disease, or I suffer with this illness, or I have this sickness in my life, and since I'm not being persecuted, and I'm not, being, not suffering for my faith, I will take that, and I will meld that into my experience, and I will say, I must then take the scriptures about suffering and apply them to my own life as I wrestle with this physical ailment. I would argue that what that has done is it has lessened our faith for physical healing. Because when you read the New Testament about suffering, we are instructed to endure suffering, not pray that we be delivered from it. And so what happens is when I assume that my suffering is my sickness, instead of asking God to heal and believing God to heal, I just say, well, that's my lot. I'll take it. I'll turn the other cheek. I'll endure it. I will persevere. And because we have melded the two together, we have had a weakened theology on our faith for divine healing. Let me give you some examples from scripture. Paul said to Timothy in second Timothy, he said to him, 
you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endurance was the key to hardship. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And in James chapter 1 and verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So what we've done is we've said, the Bible says, I need to endure. I need to endure suffering. I need to persevere. I will get a crown of life if I do. And so our whole theology on our suffering, which is most often physical sickness, is I'm just going to grit. I'm going to grit this thing out, grind this thing out. I'm going to take whatever comes my way. I'm going to persevere. And that has been our approach to what we have thought was our suffering. We have collapsed the notion of suffering into our physical sickness and disease, and we have just told everyone, just endure it. Now, here's the problem. And the issue or the problem is twofold. Number one, the New Testament teaches us to pray for healing, not for for endurance when it comes to sickness. Now, again, hear me out. We're going to talk about what happens when God doesn't heal But the New Testament teaches a theology of when I'm sick, I pray for God to heal me. Listen to what James chapter 5 and verse 13, I really want you to see this. Look at line number one. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, it will be forgiven. Please notice there's a difference between suffering and sickness. If you suffer, pray. If you are, if you are cheerful, then you need to praise. And if you are sick, you need to call the elders of the church, anoint with oil, and pray and believe God for healing. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, Jesus said, uh, he called his 12 to his disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In First Peter 2 and verse 24, he himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Look at this, by whose wounds or by whose stripes we are healed. And so the New Testament, look right here, teaches us that when we are sick, we should pray for God to heal. But secondly, and on the contrary, suffering in the New Testament always has to do with the Christian's conflict with the world and our identification with suffering with Christ. And it is always a means of developing the Christian virtue of endurance. Now, there's a lot of Greek words, and I'm not going to bore you with that. Uh, there's a lot of Greek words that are used for the word suffering, or translated the word translated suffer or suffering. But the one that's used most often in the, in the New Testament is the word thalipsis. And in every case that you see the word suffering um, that that has as its root thalipsis, which is almost every case, it is talking not about physical suffering as in sickness, but it's talking about our battle that we have with the spirit of the world, that the pushback that we're getting because of our faith. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he's not talking about sickness, but the battle that I'm experiencing because of my faith 
is not worth comparing with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we ourselves boast about you, the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and afflictions. That is, that you are enduring. Notice, enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also thalipsis. You are also suffering. And in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Please watch this. And the fellowship of his sufferings so that I can become like him in his death. Paul's not praying to get sick more. Paul's not saying, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and I want to get sick more. He is saying, I want to embrace the sufferings of Christ. Look at me for just a moment. Here's what I want you to get. I want to summarize this and pull away a takeaway or two. The New Testament teaching is this, that when we are sick, we should pray for God to heal. Now here is the issue and it's one of the reasons we love to grab the scriptures about endurance and and, and just patience is because we don't see people healed as often as we'd like to see them healed. And so we would rather just meld that into our experience. And while I wish more people were healed as well, let's not be bad interpreters of scripture just because we want scripture to fit our experience. Say amen if you believe that. And so scripture says we are to pray for healing. But when we pray for healing, we then entrust the response to the mystery of a sovereign God. God knows what is best. He is all powerful. He's all wise. But we don't need to misinterpret scripture just because we don't understand God. We are told that when we are sick, we are to pray for healing. And then we leave the result to God, but let's not mix it up with something that it is not. The New Testament teaching is that we should pray for healing when we are sick. And secondly, the New Testament teaching, on the other hand, in regard to suffering and persecution, is that we should expect it, that we should, that we should even desire it, and we should pray for God to help us endure when it comes. Sickness and suffering are two different things. And we're going to leave the subject of sickness for, for the rest of the day. That's a topic for another day. I just want you to understand that when the Bible talks about suffering, it talks about the conflict we have with a godless world that is making us pay for our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, uh, or Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And Jesus said in John 16, I write these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take heart because I have overcome the world. So how are we to respond when we experience suffering, pushback, when we feel ostracized? Five things, they're all in this section. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. Number one, we must not be surprised when we are met with suffering. Look at the text. Beloved, think it not strange. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Last week, and I'm sure you all remember it really well because you went home and studied the notes and you have now committed to what I said to memory. How many did that? You know everything I said last week. Okay, I'm super depressed now, all right? So let me tell you what I said last week. Last week, I was talking about 
Um, and by the way, don't feel too bad if it wasn't in my notes. I wouldn't remember what I said last week either. So, so last week we were talking about earlier in First Peter chapter 4 that Peter says um, you used to live a life of debauchery and revelry and, and uh, drinking parties and carousing. He used all of those words. And, and he said, I don't want you any longer to spend your energy living that way, but spend all of, of, all of your energy doing the will of God. And then Peter says, and those people that you used to do those things with, they're going to think you're strange because you're not doing them anymore. This is the same phrase here. Peter says, don't think it's odd. Don't think it's strange when you walk into a fiery trial. Now, Peter is talking to Gentile Christians. The Jews were used to being ostracized. They lived their entire history being a people in another nation, living in a foreign world. They were always the outsiders, still to this day in most cases. They know what it's like to be ostracized, but not the Gentile Christians. These Gentile Christians were Greeks. They didn't understand what it meant to be pushed away, to lose a job, to lose a promotion, to be made fun of, to not be allowed to gather with others. They had never experienced that before. And here is what Peter is saying. Don't think it's strange. When the fiery trial comes to you, folks, listen to me very carefully. We should not think it's strange either. If you feel culturally isolated or you experience personal hostility of others, that is not something foreign to those who place their faith in Christ. And I'm not trying to be prophetic here. I don't consider myself prophetic in any way, but I do want you to understand There is no doubt in my mind that we are going to see ramped up more and more where those who really call on the name of Jesus and who believe in the truth of God's word and believe that God really did create the heavens and the earth and there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and that Jesus is the only way and that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. I really believe that those who hold to those values are going to find themselves increasingly on the outside. I think we should expect that. We should not think it strange when the fiery trial comes to try us. And can I just tell you, if you're not willing to stand alone at work or with your peers or in your vocation or at school, you may struggle in these next years and decades because it is not a strange thing when those who place their faith in Christ experience trial. Somebody say amen if you believe that this morning. So number one, we shouldn't think it's strange. Number two, um, we should be thankful. (laughs) We should be thankful when we are suffering. Um, I don't know how to make that good. That's just what it it says. Here's what the text says. Um, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But here's what you should do. You should rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Why in the world should I rejoice when I suffer? Why why when I'm pushed out or I lose an opportunity because of my faith? Why, and it could even get worse, why should I rejoice if I experience persecution? For the cause of Christ. Two reasons that I think Peter gives. Number one, uh, because suffering serves as a refining fire to make us more like Christ. I want everybody to be honest. I'm going to ask a question. How many think that you could stand a little bit more being like Christ? How many think that you could still 
Okay, half of you are well on your way to heaven because half of you did not raise your hand. But how many, let's try it one more time. How many of you think that we could be a little bit more like Jesus? You could stand that. The refining fire, the trial, suffering makes us more like Christ. Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver and furnaces for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Look at Psalm 66 in verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. And Peter already said this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He opens his book by saying, In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen really closely to this quote. This, this one is one that I have, every time I read it, and this is the fourth sermon, fourth time I preached this sermon in the last a um, few hours, and it, every time it hits me even more. But Leon Bloy, a French Catholic writer who was once a Jew that converted, he says this, man has places in his heart which do not yet exist, and into them enter suffering in order that they may have existence. I won't even talk about you. I'm just going to talk about me for just a moment. There are, there are qualities of Christ that do not yet exist in my life. How many of you, again, let me ask you, how many feel like there are areas of Christ-likeness that you are still weak in? I, I, I suppose you all do. There are areas of my life, qualities of Jesus that don't yet exist. And, and what, what he says is that, into that vacuum where that quality does not exist comes suffering. And that suffering comes so that that quality might exist. In other words, the pressure, the suffering comes so that a gentleness that I didn't have before, a patience I didn't have before, a love and compassion I didn't have before. I won't go into great detail, but I can tell you that Back in about 2012 and 13, and all the years prior to that, there was a certain area of, of family life that I was very critical of those who had it happening in, in their experience. I always thought, well, it has something to do with their parenting, or, you know, I always was very quick to criticize, maybe not publicly, but that's always, always what I thought. I was very judgmental in that particular area until... I walked through about a three-year experience where I watched my life have to totally depend on his grace. And as that, as that happened in my life, that suffering, and it was tough, it was difficult, it was, it was hand-wringing at times, many tears wept. But what happened is it produced in me a quality of compassion that I never had prior to that. That quality would have never come had I not experienced that suffering. Nod your head if that makes sense to you. And so what, what Peter says, it is the refining fire. We should rejoice because we should all want to be like Christ and we want his qualities in us. And the only way those qualities can be developed is if we suffer. Second reason we should rejoice 
is because suffering allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ and therefore experience his glory as well. On September 2nd, 1945, the documents of surrender for World War II were being signed on the USS Missouri and General Douglas MacArthur and, some, and, and the Japanese and, and designated representatives of all the allied nations were on that boat. And Douglas MacArthur was the last one to sign. Everybody else had signed and MacArthur signed that document, but he began by taking his, his pen and he signed Douglas. And then he handed the pen to General Wainwright, who signed Mac, who then handed the pen to General Percival, who signed Arthur. And so the whole name, Douglas and MacArthur, was on there, but it was a joint effort. This unusual procedure was MacArthur's way of honoring these two United States generals who had suffered the persecution as prisoners of war and they had persevered and MacArthur wanted them now to enjoy the blessing of victory. If you read Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, it says that we are heirs with God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And if we suffer with him, we might be glorified with him as well. The reason that we rejoice in suffering, yes, he is refining me and he's making me more like Jesus, but also because he's allowing me to hold that pen of glory and victory. And when I suffer with him, I will also reign with him and be glorified. And it should make the believer rejoice. Say amen if you believe that. Number three, we should um, consider the reason we are met with suffering. So we, should, we shouldn't think it's strange. We should rejoice, but when we are met with suffering, we should also pause and reflect, why am I suffering? Look at what the text says. This is the part I think you were all wanting to see what I might say about it. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their parties blaspheme, on your parties glorify. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Here's what Peter is saying. Just look right here. It's really very simple. He is saying, if you suffer because you're a Christian, if you are mistreated because of your faith in Christ, if if you're not allowed to be a part of a peer group, if if you're physically uh, persecuted, if if something happens to you and you're ostracized because of your faith, you can hold your head high. It's an honor because you have suffered with Christ. But if you suffer because you did something dumb, Peter didn't say dumb. I said dumb. Okay, you're all with me. If you suffer because you did something dumb, that's not honorable. So he lists these things. If you suffer because you're a murderer. In other words, if you murder somebody and you get thrown into jail and you get beaten, don't go back to the church and say, oh, poor pitiful me. I suffered for Jesus. No, you didn't. You suffered because you murdered somebody. So then he puts another one in there, thief. If you rob uh, the village pantry down there after church, please don't do that, by the way. If you rob the village pantry after church and you get thrown in prison for six months and you have to pay fines and do community service, don't go back to the church and say, I really suffered for those six months I was in jail. I suffered for Jesus. No, you didn't. 
You suffered because you did something dumb. And the third term is evildoer, which kind of takes in all malice. All right. Let me, let me give you, make you privy to what preachers do sometimes. Sometimes when we want to really nail a point, we will say things that for like 10 minutes that everybody will agree with. And you're all behind it and you're amen and you're excited. And it's like, yeah, sick him, sick him. And then we lay out something that hits everybody and bam, we nail the whole bunch at one time. That's what Peter's doing. Peter's saying, murderer, yes, you're right, Peter. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be proud of their suffering or thief or evildoer. And then he says, or busybody in other people's matters. That's what he really wanted to talk about. He was just reeling them in. I, I guarantee you that's how the Holy Spirit works. All right, just take my word on that. That's what's happening. He's just reeling them in and they're amen in him. And then he says, or busybodies in other people's matters. You see, it was a pagan culture. And uh, you know how church people are. I know how I am. You want to fix it. We've talked about this before. And you want to get in their mess and you want to tell them how bad they are and you want to change sinners. You can't change sinners' behavior unless they're transformed by the power of Christ. You can't change it by arguing. You can't change it by more hateful rhetoric. And that's what that first century church was trying to do. And he said... If you suffer because you stick your nose in where it doesn't belong, don't go crying that you suffered. That's not suffering for Jesus. If you suffer because you loved people who hated you instead of fought with them, if you suffer because you embrace people that aren't like you because you want to show them the love of Jesus, that's something to be honored for. But if you suffer because you're just a busybody in other people's matters, It's a whole other thing. So how should we respond to suffering? We need to say, why am I suffering here? Is it because of my faith in Christ or is it because I have meandered into places that I don't belong? How many are glad you came this morning? That was pretty good stuff, folks. I know it doesn't make you say amen and get all excited, but we all could use that. I may have to listen to it myself later because I could learn some lessons there. Number four, I'll give you the last two real quickly. We should, if we suffer, we should submit ourselves to the Spirit's transforming activity. Uh, Look at the text again. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's really important, and uh, I'm almost done. But Peter likens suffering. He didn't change subjects here. He's still talking about suffering, and he likens it to the judgment of God. The judgment of God, he says, must begin in the house of God. Now, before I go too far, notice he does not put into question believers' salvation. They'll be saved, but there's still some judgment that needs to take place. The Bible is clear that Jesus is coming back. Listen to me. Look at me for just a moment. Jesus is coming back for a church, a bride that is without spot and that is without wrinkle. And to get to that point, there has to be some judgment take place in the church. There has to be some purifying, some cleansing. Listen, um, and this is just serious. I, I, not, I can't make this funny because it's not funny. But as I have said this now, and this is the fourth time, I find myself thinking this is more sacred and more somber and more serious than about anything I have said in a long time. I really am concerned 
that there are not that many Christians who have made it their highest priority to be like Jesus. Oh, we want to be like Christ. But we do, we really want to be like Christ more than we want to keep our blessed, happy, safe, secure life. Do we, are we really willing to say, God, if it takes that to make me like Jesus, if it takes that to refine me, I'm willing. I don't think there's too many of us that would sign up for it just on the front end. And so Peter is saying, There has to be some cleansing in the church. The church has to be made without spot and without wrinkle. And so when that comes, when that suffering, when that pushback comes, we should meet the Spirit's activity with a surrender saying, Holy Spirit, do in me what you desire to do. Geologist Dr. Um, James Clark he tells a story about visiting the Soviet Union shortly after the communism fell. And uh, he was visiting a little small, he was invited to, to pastor or to preach by a pastor friend in a little small Russian Baptist church. Many of the people in that congregation had suffered horribly under communism. Many of them had lost loved ones under communism and, and it had been a brutal period of time and there was great persecution and he went into that church and was ready to preach and he just saw the faces that were so weary, so tired. So he decided to pull into his uh, resources of geological understanding to share with them a very powerful truth and he described clay. He told them that clay is actually composed of many microscopic mineral crystals, so small that not even a light microscope can see them. But under pressure, the clay minerals are not crushed. They don't become smaller, rather they actually grow larger. These minerals, when they're crushed and when they're pushed, actually change into new, larger biotype grains that form slate that many of the houses in Russia were made of. He went on to say that when even more pressure is applied, the minerals become even larger and some of them are actually transformed into garnet, which is a precious stone that reflects beautiful light. Clark said, I explained to the congregation that this geological process illustrates how pressure and suffering can be used to refine and purify and mold a person into a more beautiful soul. He said, I will never forget what I saw when I looked at the congregation. It seemed like the whole congregation was sparkling. The babushkas, the older women's eyes were gleaming bright with tears, recalling their past suffering. What makes a gem so attractive, he asked, it's the reflection. And these dear women and men were reflecting God's glory and through their suffering, they had endured. Our uh, mission statement for the last 20 years has been developing biblically sound believers who reflect the character of Christ. And sometimes it takes pressure to turn us into those gems that can reflect his character. And without that pressure, we might just kind of mosey on through life, enjoy our blessing, but never reflect the Christ that can change people's lives. 
I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be like Jesus enough? Do you want so desperately to be like Jesus that people see Christ in you? And do you want it desperately enough that you are willing to allow yourself to feel the pressure of suffering and maybe even persecution? And stand with me, if you would, as I give you the last point, and I'm quitting at this. When faced with suffering, we should deepen our trust and more fully surrender to God when we are met with suffering. Look at Peter's words one more time, verse 19. Peter said, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So when suffering comes, deepen our trust. More fully surrender. It's not a sermon, to be very honest, that I really super enjoy preaching. It's what I'm glad I get to preach because I really believe in preaching the whole counsel of God's word. And when you preach through a book, you have to deal with these texts. There's no other way... There's no, uh, no other way to teach this. This is what the Bible says. But it does force us to uh, reflect and be honest before the Holy Spirit. And to deal with a subject that, quite honestly, and I'll stand and blame with preachers across America, we've not dealt with this. We have been very poor at teaching about suffering. Ajith Fernando is a uh, Sri Lankan leader, works with the urban poor in Sri Lanka. And and he writes this one paragraph. I'm going to read it to you and then we're going to pray. He says this, uh, Fernando writes, the church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. And I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what we do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering. But there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. For God intends for us to grow through trials. If if we look honestly at the landscape of the church in America... We are immature as a church. We just are. When you read George Mueller and you read C.T. Studd, some of the great men of God, and you read what they experienced and how they experienced the power of God through suffering and trial, and then you look at the American church so, so um, informed by a prosperity, a health and wealth theology. So the American church is so informed by that. 
that we have not developed a theology of suffering at all because we have thought suffering was sin. It's what we've been taught. If you're not healthy and wealthy, there's something wrong with your life. That's not what the Bible says. That's what the American church has been taught. And so we have rejected. We have, we have figured out ways, schemes to get out of suffering. But without the pressure of suffering, maturity can't be built. You cannot, unless you're squeezed, you cannot be formed. And so we've become spiritually soft, inadequate, and it's one of the reasons, I'm just going to say one of the reasons the world has swept into America and taken over because the church has been immature and ineffective, not disciple makers. But we have been more focused on the American dream than we have the Christ-like life. I want that to change in me. I hope you want that to change in you. That may mean some pressure. Are we willing to say, bring it on? Because if it's going to make me like Jesus and I'm going to share in his glory, I'll take it. May not be fun. I may not enjoy it. It may be painful. That's what Peter says. It's painful for a season. But if we will take it on and receive it, he'll change us and make us like him. And when we're reflecting his character, we are ready to meet a world that's broken, that's hurting. Listen, people are looking for answers. They're looking for hope. We just are not offering it like we should. Bow your heads with me if you would, please. Um, I don't want to ramble any longer. I just want to lay it out there. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've never accepted Christ as the Lord of your life. Say, Pastor Kevin, I'm not living for him. My heart's not right with him. I'm not ready to meet him. But I sure want to be. Would you pray for me? Anybody in this room that would raise a hand and say, pray for me. I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life today. I want to walk out of here knowing for sure that I am ready to meet him. Anyone in this room would say, would you pray for me? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else in this room? else. I wonder how many would say uh, with me. If God wants to pressure me to make me more like him and to make me more effective. I want to say to him, I want to surrender to him and say, Lord, whatever you need to do in my life, I'll let you do it. Listen, you know, there was a man that said to Jesus, yes, I believe but help my unbelief. And I think we're all kind of there. Lord, I do want that, but it's hard. But how many, just with your heads bowed, would raise your hand and say, I want that. Whatever God wants to do to make me more like him, I want that. Even if it means squeezing me and pressuring me. At least one raised their hand. So I want to pray a prayer. I want us all to pray out loud. And then we're going to sing this chorus to kind of affirm the message today. But I would like everyone to pray this prayer out loud. If you raised your hand, say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Or if you didn't, but you should have. I want you to pray this as well, but pray it and mean it. Everyone out loud with me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe on the cross. I believe on the cross. You took my sin. You paid my penalty. 
I give you my life. I ask you to be my Lord. I thank you for saving me. With my mouth, I confess you as my Lord. In my heart, I believe God raised you from the dead. From this day forward, with your help and your strength, I will serve you with all of my heart. Come and live inside of me. Be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Father, I thank you for the fact that you did on the cross bear our sin. You became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Pray, Lord, for those who prayed that prayer that they would know this moment that they are indeed your child. And I pray, Lord, for all of us who have said, yes, God, whatever it takes, I want you to change me. I want you to make me like Jesus. Even if it means I'm stretched, I'm pressured, I have to suffer. Even if it means persecution, I am going to follow you because I want not only to be like you, but I want to share in your eternal glory. So God, in the midst of pain and trial and struggle, help us to heed the words of the psalmist and be still and know that you are God. I thank you for that today. In Jesus' name. Before we sing this chorus this morning, if we close in just a moment if you raised your hand when we dismiss i invite you to come and to the front pastor josh will meet you'd love to pray with you and share a little booklet with you when we dismiss